Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 25 of Unknown Orbits, Clutch of Morpheus by Larry Sternig. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm going to apologize in advance to our listeners. We're presenting you a pretty crappy story this week. But purposefully. Purposefully, for a number of different reasons. Just to give you a quick overview of the plot of this story, the protagonist is a man who is unable to sleep. All of his life, he's never slept one minute, so he's constantly awake. And fortunately for the rest of the world, he just happens to be around the right people at the right time when Earth passes through the tail of a comet and everybody on Earth starts to fall asleep. And he just happened to be visiting the one scientist who might hold the key to understanding what was going on with this this comet. And then the and one then person. <laughs> he finds the one person who has the technology so he figures out how to solve the problem of people falling asleep, finds the right guy to start implementing the solution so that when that guy falls asleep, he finishes it up, saves the world, and everybody wakes up and they don't die of starvation. Because the thing is that Earth's going to be going through the tail of the comet for like a month. So everybody in, in the entire planet would be asleep for a month. Everybody would starve to death. It's And the protagonist? And the protagonist... What? At the end of the story, it was very short. It was like one sentence. At the end of the story, the protagonist... Oh, yes. He falls asleep for the first time in his life. Yes. And presumably goes on to marry the beautiful daughter of the scientist that he immediately fell in love with at the beginning of the story. It is a story filled with ridiculous coincidences. Needless coincidences. Yeah. There's the fragment of a potential story here. The idea of the only person on earth that can't sleep has to save the world from falling asleep. But this this is a very badly executed story. Now, there were a couple reasons why this story was chosen, however. The first reason is it was part of an anthology of science fiction stories that I read and owned when I was a young kid. This was one of those anthologies of science fiction that I gobbled up when I was 10, 12 years old. It was called Tales of Time and Space. It was published by Western Publishing right here in Racine, Wisconsin, just south of Milwaukee. They were a pretty well-known and successful publishing company. They were the publishers of the Little Golden Books, which I believe we've talked about previously when it came to Buck Rogers. Oh, yes. The Little Golden Books were very popular and are collectible to this day. They were also the publishers of Gold Key Comics, which for me were fairly important because they published titles like Magnus Robot Fighter. This is during the 1960s. Space Family Robinson. Oh, I know that what, one. The interesting story behind Space Family Robinson is that it predated Lost in Space by like a year. So it was an existing comic book about a family that was traveling through outer space. And when Lost in Space came out, they cut a deal with the producers of Lost in Space to make it 
be about loss in space. It was still called the Space Family Robinson. I'm guessing that this was part of a path from Robinson Crusoe and then Swiss Family Robinson. Yes, right. And I think we just mentioned this in a recent podcast, the Disney movie, The Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, yeah. We said something about the girl. Yeah, the teen actress that was in that movie was in another movie that we recently talked about. Yes. So the Gold Key comics, they were also very well known for adapting tons and tons of movie and TV properties. They did the Star Trek comics, the original series Star Trek comics in the 1960s, Twilight Zone comics. I remember those too. Believe it or not, Land of the Giants, I think they had a comic book. So any TV show, especially a TV show in the science fiction or horror area, would get an adaptation in Gold Key comics. I read a lot of those. They were almost as important to me as the DC and Marvel comics were at the time. In my reading library, they're right up there with the rest. So how did you come across this anthology originally? I don't recall if it was a Christmas present or if I bought it on one of our trips into Milwaukee where we would go to Mayfair Mall and they would drop me off at the Dalton bookstore for an hour. And I would spend an hour going through the bookstore with a fine tooth comb and I would pick five books or so that my parents would buy for me and I'd bring home and read. And this might have been one of those times where I picked this book out of the stack. And it had a lot of really good stories in it by other much better writers than poor Larry. So it was a pretty good volume for a young 12-year-old kid to cut his teeth on. Now, when it comes to Larry Sternig, you have a personal connection with Larry. Yes, he was my father's agent from the mid-50s until past the time my father died because he handled the estate afterwards. So from the mid-50s to like 1999 when he passed away. Yeah, he ran the Larry Sternig Literary Agency in Milwaukee for over 40 years. Andre Norton, along with your father, Andre Norton was one of his clients. So he had a fairly distinguished list of clients. I'm not sure if Robert Block was a client, but he knew him. Yeah, they ran in the same circles for sure. So a local boy, Larry, from Milwaukee. And that brings me to our secondary topic here today, which is talking about the role that literary agents played for writers during this period of time, the golden age of science fiction, how they helped their clients sell their stories, sometimes having to settle for going downward in the food chain a little bit. Yes, definitely. What made Larry a valuable agent, he was well known for responding to any new publication that came around. It didn't matter what size. Part of the reason it didn't matter what size and how much they paid, because with every announcement he got, he would bundle up a bunch of stories from his clients, things that had not sold before, that had been rejected time and time again, and send it to this new publisher. Now, the new publisher gets the benefit of publishing a named author, even if the story isn't all that great, and the author gets the benefit of having another story published. Even if it wasn't all that great, he got 50 bucks for it. And now that it's been published, it's more likely to go to a reprint. Yes. What I always found interesting about selling these unsold manuscripts to other smaller markets, going down the quality ladder, is that 
often these new markets would have different requirements usually smaller sized stories. So the author who's lost interest in this story because it's been rejected so many times, uh, Larry would say, okay, it's 2,500 words, cut it down to 1,500 and we might get 50 bucks for it. And then that doesn't work. Well, okay, I got a newspaper syndicate, community press. They're buying thousand word stories. Can you cut it down to a thousand words? And then you cut it down and, and it keeps going further and further down until that story that 4,000-word story you wrote for Playboy becomes a $10 publication in community press. I guess that's what you had to do if you were a working writer back in the day. I mean, it's too bad that your dad didn't write more science fiction because there was a lot of publications in the 1950s for science fiction. Well, were there? would you say there was more... Then there were for crime stories or... No, I was welling because I well remember the science fiction he did write. So he wasn't, he wasn't terribly adept at it, should we say? Well, he was a very good non-science fiction writer who wrote science fiction. Okay. Let me give you three plots and you judge. Oh, by the way, he was well known for having twists in his stories. Mm-hmm. So... Take the first one. The guy invents a time machine and he finds himself on the Hindenburg. And he spends the story trying to explain to the pilots what's going to happen, etc., etc. Seems like I've heard this story before somewhere. Did I hand it to you? No, I think it was called a Twilight Zone episode about the guy in the Titanic. Oh, well, this is different. So the guy in the end, when the Hindenburg goes in for the mooring, he panics. He hasn't been able to affect anything. And he jumps breaks both his legs, and nothing happens to the Hindenburg because the Hindenburg made several successful trips before. That's actually not a bad idea for a story. That's, that's not bad. That's a good one. There was one that I think was fairly unique, and I really like. A kid stumbles across a crashed alien ship, and an alien is fixing the engine and has the kid help. After he takes off, it turns out the kid had, at the last minute, stolen the bag of tools and hidden them, and his plan was to figure out how they worked, patent them, and become rich. That's okay. That's decent. Again, kind of a one-note story. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. The third story was about a couple of astronauts, or one astronaut and one cosmonaut, orbiting the Earth. They were playing the first game of chess in space, but because it was the Cold War and it was a good propaganda opportunity, they both turned out to be ringers, chess experts. The twist at the end was that even though the American lost like five or six times out of seven, he was the first man to win a game of chess in space because the cosmonaut was a woman. I I can see where he's not exactly grappling with great ideas. Right. Which a lot of the science fiction writers of the day were doing. Now, all three stories had the same tone. I think one that was common in short magazine mystery fiction at the time, from what I remember. But I don't think that tone would have worked very well in a science fiction magazine. That's a really interesting point. That tone mattered in the market's back in those days, which makes sense because your readers were probably accustomed and attuned to reading a certain type of story. 
And each magazine maybe had a little bit different flavor. We certainly believe that Galaxy and Astounding had very different flavors in terms of the stories they would typically run. Oh, and fantasy and science fiction, it was just like the perfect triangle. So each of them had their own set of readers and subscribers that expected a certain type of story and a certain tonality. So that's interesting to add that element to the list of things that were important in the markets was the issue of tone. So what Larry would do is find a market for as many stories as he could that his writers would write, even if sometimes they wound up being in a community newspaper or something like the Milwaukee Journal screen sheet. Yes, he was the last of the 10 percenters and he worked for it. So yeah, 10 percent of 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a dollar, man. <laughs> That's really, you, you got to question what you're doing if you're making a dollar off of hours of work, potentially. The connection to the green sheet is, now we would have talked about this anyway, but I made an initial mistake believing that Clutch Morpheus was published in the green sheet. It was not. And I have now recalled why I thought that was the case. In the early 90s, Larry laughingly showed me that he earned a reprint from a short story that he had published in the green sheet like 50 years earlier. So they did publish fiction at one time, and he did get a story in there. I thought it was this one. You know, I was an avid green sheet reader when I was a kid. And for those of you who are not familiar, the green sheet was a four-page insert in the Milwaukee Journal that was the comic pages, all of the daily comics. It was printed on green paper, thus the green sheet. And in between the comics, there were crossword puzzles, there were humorous pieces, apparently fiction. I don't remember fiction. They may have changed by the time I, I was old enough to read it. I suspect they switched away from fiction because... When I was old enough to read it regularly, there was always a good nonfiction story on the front page of yeah. it, which I devoured. Like Ripley's Believe It or Not type stories or Stranger Than Truth or, you know, odd little nonfiction stories. There were jokes and riddles and other kinds of puzzles. So it was kind of the catch-all for the Milwaukee Journal. And I remember vividly that the paper would arrive And I would grab the paper and I would pull the green sheet out and run off to the living room to lay on the living room floor and read the green sheet from front to back. There was a technique in slipping the green sheet out from the other pages. Right. Because, you know, dad had to have the sports page right away. I don't know what part of the paper mom read, to be honest with you. But I was first in line and I got that green sheet right off the bat. My dad did the crossword puzzle every day in felt tip. People who do it in pen, I would do it in pen, but that allows you to kind of do a correction. If you do it in felt tip, there's no going back whatsoever. That reminds me, my dad would have to retrieve the green sheet from me because he did the crossword puzzle too. That's one reason why I had to grab the green sheet was I had to be able to finish it and read it before dad wanted to do his crossword puzzle. So it was kind of like a race against dad. When I was a little kid, that was so much of a newspaper to me that it became this dream of being the editor, your own little kingdom. I had that dream of growing up to be the editor of the green sheet. Yeah, definitely. And there was a brief period in the late 80s, early 90s, after you and I were out of college, 
at the time, I think the Milwaukee Journal was phasing out the green sheet. I don't recall when they actually killed it off for good, but it was it was not the green sheet of old. It was a years-long process. Yeah. So the handwriting on was on the wall for the green sheet, and we were like, hey, let's publish our own green sheet. Because we had worked together to publish a student newspaper in college, so we had the background and the experience to be able to publish our own newspaper. We had advertising contacts that we could have gotten advertising for it, and there was a lot of syndicated material out there. You know, the more hip comic strips that would appear in, you know, alternative press news oh, weeklies. Yeah. Life, something life? Uh, life and Hell. Well, yeah. Matt, Matt Greening's Life and Hell was one of them. There was no publication in Milwaukee Market that was publishing Life and Hell at the time. So we're going to like, oh, we got to get Life and Hell. Pinhead? Zippy the Pinhead? Zippy, no, yeah. I, I, was the Shepherd publishing Zippy the Head? Yeah, Pinhead? but that wouldn't prevent anyone else from right. publishing it. But too. anyway, that was the sort of content. We we're going to have comics. So we're going to get a lot of hip comics and even some square ones, maybe, and write our own humor and put humor in there or get syndicated columnists in there and publish a weekly paper that would be, I don't know, 24 pages or something like that, filled with comics and and puzzles and crossword puzzles and humorous columns. And this was right around the time The Onion was emerging, so we were like, well, we could write as good as The Onion. That was our goal at one point. It was one of those dreams we had over a couple of beers that never came to fruition, which I'm kind of sorry about to some degree. I still think it was 90% there. No, I think we could have done it. I think if one of us would have had a little bit of money at the time, I think we would have done it. I think that was the main thing is we were just graduated from college, broke ass, former college students. If either one of us had been a rich, or if we knew a rich kid who would have gone in with us as partners, I think we would have done it. Anyway, that's a bit of a diversion. Remember the radio show idea that we worked on for a while? Which one? We had a couple. The paranormal late night radio show. Oh, we are going to do like an Art Bell, but... Before Art Bell was around. I'm a little foggy on whether it was before Art Bell or about the same time. Yeah, maybe it was at the same time, but definitely early Art Bell. I remember we were going to play it straight for the true believers, but then at the same time, we'd be targeting an audience of college students who'd be laughing at the stories of the true believers. And I do remember vividly that we were going to try to come up with some sort of a scam, some sort of conspiracy theory that we could try to sell to wind up on Art Bell. You know, like the pyramids were batteries for intergalactic spaceships or something like that. I think that is a real... Yeah, that's the one that comes to mind. But that was the problem, is there were so many crazy theories showing up on that show every day, every night, that you had to really work hard to try to find something different and unique that hadn't been done already. And if we would have found that one idea, maybe we would have gone forward with it. Now, let's circle back with a question. We gave the plot of Clutch of Morpheus, which was not a huge plot. It was a lot of machinations. How would you have done the same thing eliminating a lot of those problems. I Boy, I don't even know if it's salvageable, to be honest with you, because it's so dependent on these crazy coincidences. I like the idea of a guy who can't sleep, and there's something that happens to Earth that everybody on Earth goes to sleep. Here's how I do it. I just came up with an idea. So here's this guy who's haunted by the fact that he's never been able to sleep. So he always had, like, 
odd jobs, like third shift jobs that nobody else wanted. And he winds up taking a job out in the planets, the moons of Jupiter or something. And he's on a remote base on one of the moons of Jupiter and the comet passes by and everybody on the the outpost goes asleep. And he's all alone out there and the comet's heading for Earth. So it'll be passing Earth in a couple of months. He's got to solve the immediate problem of trying to revive all the people that are there on the outpost with him. And if he's successful at doing that, then he can forward a solution back to Earth to prepare for the comet that's coming. Or Earth figures out roughly what's going on and says, okay, there's a device on the comet. All we have to do is blow it up. But you're the only man that can get close enough because you can't sleep. Yeah, that's a good idea. But I like the idea of him being, I just have this image of the guy all alone in this isolated moon base. Everybody around him is sleeping and he's wandering through the quarters completely and utterly alone, millions of miles from Earth. I just love that image of complete and utter isolation. Okay, so my repair of the story, I'm going to try to take a minimal approach, the smallest changes you could make, getting rid of the coincidences. You would have the man who can't sleep in a facility being studied. So he's already attached to the doctor who's studying the very thing that comes up. Exactly, and he's a sleep doctor. Yeah. So it's not a coincidence that he runs into this doctor, that he's in this facility being studied and all the tools and technology is already right there. Yes. And the doctor's even working on what will end up being the solution to save Earth. So all this guy has to do is be there, witness things, and put one and two together and finish the last bit of research. So let me get this straight. The device that's going to put him to sleep All he has to do is reverse the leads, and it wakes everybody up. Reverse the polarity. Yes. (laughs) Oh, there's an old trope. That's an improvement, having him start out in the facility being studied. Yeah, I think one of the most common mistakes is to have coincidences. You can come up with a reason why some of the strangest things that seemingly don't go together at all, they come together, and it's not a coincidence. Right. That is definitely an improvement. Do you remember the movie The Andromeda Strain? Yeah. Where they they had these survivors of the virus that killed everybody except a handful of people, and they were locked in this facility under observation. I kind of visualize that as the beginning of this story, that he's in some sort of isolated facility where he's in like a clean room. It's like a bedroom for him. You know, if you wanted to add a little bit to it, he's being studied because the military is involved and they want to come up with the radio beam that puts the enemy to sleep. Yes, that's another good wrinkle. See, minimal effort. We made this story way better. (laughs) Minimal effort. Sorry, Larry, um, you're a great agent, but this is not one of your better efforts, literary-wise. Well, that's it for episode 25. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.